Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down Star Trek Prodigy Season 1, Episode 16, entitled Preludes, as well as Episode 17, Ghost in the Machine. We'll end our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. Yep. Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for Preludes. Okay. Still hiding in the Romulan neutral zone, the Protostar crew continue to make repairs to the ship. While there, three of the crew members reveal how they ended up as enslaved miners on Tars Lamora. Despite her young age, Rock worked as a fighter known as the Monster in matches similar to the dubious reputation of American pro wrestling. She would fight against a much smaller opponent known as the Hero. It was predetermined the Hero would win every match until Rock grew tired of the ruse. After she easily won one of her matches, her value was severely discounted since this outcome had little box office appeal. Rock was sold to the Kazon, who then sold her to the Diviner. Zero told the crew he previously was not encased in a containment suit, but could roam freely with other Medusans to explore wonders of the universe. However, one day, the Kazon, you may have heard of them before, uh-huh. wearing a special visor captured and allowed his enslavement of Tars Lamora. Jacob Pog had been placed in a cryogenic chamber along with 29 other orphaned Tellarites on a sleeper ship making a long journey to support an unnamed mission. During the trip, Jacob was awakened accidentally to make critical repairs to the ship, although he was not a trained engineer. Through perseverance and a bit of luck, he completes all tasks. Yet in the end, he sacrifices himself by leaving the ship in in an escape pod when informed there's only enough oxygen remaining to support all but one Tellarite. He soon meets the same fate as Zero and Rock when his pot is abducted by the Kazon. On the Dauntless, Vice Admiral Janeway softens her opinion of the Protostar crew. When First Officer Thais provides evidence, they were probably victims of a mysterious person known as the Diviner. Meanwhile, in Insinia's quarters, we find the officer has revealed herself to be a disguised Val Nakat agent, aided by a version of, a new version actually, of the Dreadnought robot. Asensia attempts to help the Diviner recall their shared mission. The Ensign reminds the Diviner she is contemporary of his from the future. She tells him about first contact with the Federation and how their people had dismissed an invitation to join the organization since they believed themselves superior and would find no benefit in such an alliance. Yet on Solemn, 
its home planet, the Volnikot society deteriorated rapidly into infighting, which led to a civil war. They now requested Federation assistance to end the deadly conflict, and when Starfleet refused to take sides, the Valnakot blamed them for not stopping the atrocities that would lead to the annihilation of the civilization. Decades later, due to a wormhole temporal distortion, Captain Jacoti and the protostar ended up in the future at Solemn. Using dreadnought robots, the Volnakot captured the ship and its crew. Seeking vengeance for their self-made plight, they outfitted the protostar with an apocalyptic weapon and planned to take it back to the past to destroy the Federation before first contact, thinking that would provide a different outcome for the future of their people. However, Chakotay and the other crew members escaped capture and sent the protostar back in time through the wormhole before the Valnakat had a chance to take command of it. The Valnakat sent a team of 100 ships of their people with a dreadnought robot to find the protostar and complete their heinous scheme. Few of the 100 Volnakat ships were able to make it through the wormhole safely. Asensia informed the Diviner that he and she were two of those still able to complete the mission. With Asensia's help, the Diviner now seems to fully remember his charge. Then, without warning, Admiral Janeway enters Asensia's quarters and is taken aback by the ensign's change in appearance and Dreadnought's presence. The Diviner knocks her out before she can call for assistance. Mm. Dun dun dun. <laughs> All right, so let's go to this latest episode, Ghost in the Machine. Sure. The episode opens with the Protostar crew using the holodeck to simulate a strategy to warn the Dauntless about the living construct that's that doomsday weapon they are transporting on board. However, this simulation, as well as others they have tried, have all ended in futility. They decide to take a break and enjoy some ice cream before leaving the mess hall for other pursuits. The crew soon discovers they cannot leave the, the holodeck and come to believe that they cannot get out of the program until they solve a mystery based on clues they've received through a series of programs originally created by the crew. The crew first encounter a holodeck game that Zero has made called the Cellar Door Society. They then face off against a group of bikers resembling Dr. Gnome of the Dauntless. Now this game was created by Jacob Pog. They soon learn they could endure real harm as the safety protocols have been turned off. Dahl contacts Hollow Janeway to release them from the holodeck program. She asks him for his command codes to override the system. However, the codes prove ineffective. The crew defeat the bikers, then face two more simulations, Murph's nightclub scene and a mashup of Dahl's pirate scenario and Rock Talk's virtual pet. When it looks like they will never solve the mystery, Zero deduces the point of the holodeck simulations is for them to continue to be preoccupied indefinitely with these games. 
Zero identifies Janeway as the one responsible for their predicament. They advise the only way to end the program is to refuse to participate. The strategy succeeds and Gwen confronts Janeway about Zero's accusation, but she denies it. Zero contends that unbeknownst to Janeway's, someone must have planted a subroutine within her to ensure the protostar fulfilled the Valnakot's mission. Gwen surmised Janeway acquired Dahl's command codes to remain in control of the protostar. At episode's end, the crew find the ship has left the neutral zone and finds itself in close proximity to the Dauntless, helpless to warn them of the danger on board. Once again, dun dun dun. <laughs> well, let's move on to the credits. Preludes was written by Julie Benson, Shauna Benson, Nikhil S. Jeraram, Kevin Hageman, Dan Hageman, Deandra Pendleton Thomas, Chad Quant, Lisa Schultz Boyd. It's quite a few people. Yeah, that's the entire writing staff. The episode was directed by the tag team of Stephen N. Chong An and Sung Shin. Ghost in the Machine was written by Chad Quant. The episode was directed by Andrew L. Schmidt. Quant has given sole writing credit for this episode. He's an award-winning writer and producer, including a co-producer for Prodigy. He's written for other shows, including Netflix animated series Troll Hunters, Tales of Arcadia with Guillermo del Toro and the Hagman Brothers. Also, he's done Unkitty, a spinoff from the Lego movie, Wizards, and the upcoming The Search for Wandla for Apple TV+. With their frequency serving as director on various episodes, director Sung Shen and his sometimes partner Stephen N. Cheng An joined the writers and the Hageman brothers as key creative partners in shaping this first season. Preludes is the fifth episode directed by An and the eighth for Shen. Andrew L. Schmidt returns to direct Ghost of Machine. He previously had done All the World's a Stage. So we're moving to the analysis. In Preludes, the crew of the Protostar take time to pause and learn the backstories of Rock Talk, Jacob Pog, and Zero. The episode also provides us with a detailed explanation of the first contact between Solemn and Starfleet, in addition to giving us insight to the whereabouts of Jacote. Ghost of the Machine presents the crew trapped within what they believe is a holodeck malfunction made from a mashup of their individual simulations. They discover it's something far more sinister, putting them in a far graver danger. Whereas the theme of episode 15, Masquerade, was concealment, the theme for Preludes is exposure. We learn bits of information that adds a new level to many of the characters. This episode also gives us the weak reasoning as to why the surviving members of the Val Nakat are committed to destroying the Federation. The theme of Ghosts and Machine is deceit. At first, the Protostar crew believe they've figured out the way to free themselves from the holodeck. If they find key clues in each of their simulations, they should be able to escape. 
But it's not until Zero deduces that their quest for keys is only a distraction that keeps them from focusing on the real way to free themselves, and that is not to play the game. Both Preludes and Ghosts in the Machine are bottle episodes, meaning their stories are relatively self-contained. Their pacing and the amount of important information they provide are in stark contrast to Masquerade, where we learned about Dahl's origins and the writers raised the level of action and intensity. Some critics online have questioned the timing of these episodes, saying they gave us information we should have learned earlier in the season. That's a subjective observation. But each episode has dropped an important bit of new information that should set up where we're going in episodes 18, 19, and 20. So let's look at what we've learned. Specifically, we've learned the Diviner's Vendetta against the Federation is based on how the Valnakat responded to their invitation to join the organization. A difference of opinion amongst factions of the planet Solom developed into a civil war. The Federation's General Order 1 prohibited them from getting involved even though the pro-Federation forces petitioned them to do so. We also learned that Ensign Essencia is actually another Valnakat called the Vindicator who was sent on the same mission as the Diviner. She has a new dreadnought. With it and the Diviner, they have subdued Vice Admiral Janeway and plan to take control of the Dauntless. So things are looking bad for our heroes. Aboard the Protostar, we find out that the Diviner has a fail-safe program designed to make sure the ship destroys the Federation at all costs. Zero's conclusion that Hollow Janeway had, had trapped them in the holodeck, acting under some secret subroutine programmed by the living construct, just reinforced the threat that entity poses. However, to find out that Hollow Janeway was acting upon programming shouldn't have been that big of a surprise. We've seen her programming become compromised earlier in this uh, season. Yes, true. So here's what we still don't know. Personally, we believe the Vonnegut faulting Starfleet for the destruction of Solemn is just blame shifting. It's also extremely thin. Could there possibly be some other factor we haven't learned of yet? Also, what is the living construct? Yes. If it is sentient, then it could be related in some way to Dreadnought. If so, does one of Dreadnought's previously revealed weaknesses provide an opportunity for destroying the living construct and saving Earth and the Federation? All right. And here are some final thoughts. One, Jacoti has got to be the most unlucky person in Star Trek. I mean, really. <laughs> he gets lost in the Delta Quadrant not once but twice. And during the second time, he finds himself flung into the future as well um, at the mercy of hostile alien species. We're hoping season two could include an attempt to bring him and the crew back from the future. Yeah, I mean, that would be an easy way to keep the current crew of the Protostar and Jane and Hollow Janeway and then go seek him out. Right. Okay, number 
Two, in our final thoughts, the Vindicator made an intriguing statement as she retold the story of the Valnikots' first encounter with the Federation. She said that they saw joining the Federation as an asset to that alliance, but not to the Valnikot. An observation that the Federation benefits more from the alliance than other planets, specifically individual members, echoes a similar thought presented by Captain Pike in the first season of Strange New Worlds. Prior to this year, however, the only other time someone has questioned the worth of joining the Alliance has been during Deep Space Nine and then conjunction specifically with the planet Bajor. Yeah, that, that's other than discovery in the future where people, uh, where uh, these planets, you know. But that was more based on the burn and them being disconnected and no longer seeing the ability to really join forces. Right, which is the same thing as questioning joining the Alliance. So, Well, we see people joining up pretty fast in the future. All right, so moving on, let's go to our bits and pieces segment. And this time, Gary's calling it Kazon and the Holodeck Edition. (laughs) (laughs) Prelude reminds us of one important fact. The Kazon remained the absolute most worthless species in Star Trek. There are races that are more devious, more violent, more manipulative, and more frustrating. But in most cases, they may have one redeeming characteristic. The Kazon have none. 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 (laughs) None. (laughs) Preludes feature the Kazon in each of the backstories. Rock Talk was sold into slavery to the Kazon, who then was sold to the Diviner. It was the Kazon ship that captured Jankum Pog's pod. The ship was somewhat similar to the Kazon shuttles seen on Star Trek Voyager. Finally, it was the Kazon that captured Zero using the same containment system and protective goggles Spock wore in the original series episode, Is There in Truth No Beauty? Yeah, Um, the Kazon have been the race with the worst hair. (laughs) They have no planet. Yes. And they're completely, utterly without any redeemable qualities whatsoever. None whatsoever. In Ghost in the Machine... The holodeck story echoed other holodeck episodes from previous series. Zero's Cellar Door Society had a resemblance to the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, which reminded us of the TNG episode, Elementary My Dear Data. Jacob's street fighting simulation reminds me of the hand-to-hand combat scenarios Worf would use on The Next Generation. Murph's black and white nightclub looked like a combination between Vic Fontaine's Club from DS9 and a Dixon Hill crime novel from The Next Generation. All right. Dahl's pirate ship simulation recalls the holodeck ceremony where Lieutenant Worf was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Commander in Star Trek Generations. The ceremony is conducted using a 19th century sailing ship. So all those situations kind of give us an idea of how often the holodeck has been used. Oh, yeah. Quite a lot. Quite a lot. So we've done it this season. 
we don't have to go back to it again. <laughs> All right. So, Gary, let's move on to Star Trek News. Sure, three sure. three stories. Yeah, and the first one's kind of sad. Yeah. As reported by Variety, actress Kirstie Alley died of colon cancer on December 5th at the age of 71. She was probably best known for her role as Rebecca Howe in the television series Cheers, which ran from 1987 to 1993. However, Star Trek fans know her as the Vulcan Lieutenant Sabic in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Allie was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, and made her way to Los Angeles after her sophomore year at Kansas State University. Her television career began in 1978, and she made her film debut in The Wrath of Khan. The role brought Allie a Saturn Award nomination. Among many other award nominations, Allie won several Golden Globes and multiple People's Choice Awards, as well as a Primetime Emmy Award. In 1995, she received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for her contributions to motion pictures. It really is um, striking when you realize that The Wrath of Khan was her first film role. She had no idea about what it was like to do films. And she really... She got that early on in her career. She was very lucky. And she pulled it off. I mean... Yes, she did. Yes, she is. She was very good. Next, next, let's go to the next item. Yeah, this is on Michelle Yao. Yeah. On December 6th, Time Magazine named Yao its 2022 Icon of the Year uh, awardee, highlighting her storied acting career that includes this year's critically acclaimed film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Yao's performance is in the well-received surreal action drama has her being considered a favorite for an Oscar nomination. Earlier this year, she had been named to Time's 100 Most Influential People of 2022. Star Trek fans know Michelle Yao best in her dual roles as the Federation Captain Philippa Giorgio and the Terran Emperor Giorgio on Star Trek Discovery. However, Years before landing her first American role, Yao, now 60, was already a movie icon in Asia. She had starred in popular Hong Kong action films throughout the late 80s and early 90s, becoming famous for doing her own stunts. In fact, she co-starred a number of times with Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah. So Yao made her American film debut in the 1997 James Bond adventure, Tomorrow Never Dies, she played Wei Lin, a Chinese espionage agent and Bond's equal. Yao continued to win over American audiences with her supporting role in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, and Kung Fu Panda 2. But most recently, the actress has won praise for her layered performance in the comedy drama Crazy Rich Asians, where she played the mannered matriarch of a wealthy Malaysian family. After 40 years in the business, everything, everywhere, all at once, gave Yao her first role as a lead of a film. We both agree Michelle Yao is finally receiving some of the well-deserved accolades 
from Western critics that have been long overdue. All right. Yeah, so I'm really happy for her. I hope she gets that Oscar nomination. That's right, I do too. Now for our last news item, we have some baby news. Star Trek Discovery's Anthony Rep has announced that he and his partner, Ken Ithafol, welcomed their son to the world. Rep made the announcement via Twitter, posting a picture of the couple with their infant son. The, in- the announcement reads, Ken and I are thrilled to share that our family has grown. Our son, Rye Larson Ithafol, was brought into the world on Friday, December 2nd, 2022, by an incredibly generous surrogate to whom we're eternally grateful. We love him very much. In closing, we'll be back next week with our analysis of episode 18 of Star Trek Prodigy entitled Mind Walk. Before we sign off, we would like to remind you that to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. Also, since we've been producing this show since September of 2017, we want to suggest that you explore our full catalog of episodes. Our podcast includes analysis of every episode of Star Trek Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and Strange New Worlds, as well as reviews of short treks and several special topic shows. Please recommend our podcast to your friends or family members who want to dig deeper into the Star Trek universe. Until that time, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. At Facebook, at Facebook.com Star Trek AOD. At our website as well, Star Trek AOD. .net, where we offer additional articles and Star Trek canon, as well as sidebar issues and other aspects of the shows. Also, email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.